0: This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond.
1: I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences.
0: This week on True Crime
2: Chronicles.
1: This is perhaps
2: the biggest unsolved mystery in my time here in the capital city that's on the books right now. This week, we have two stories to bring you on True Crime Chronicles. The first
3: is a case that anyone who's been living in Columbia, South Carolina since the early 90s will recall. Will Johnson has that story. Back in September 1992,
0: J.R. Barry was a crime reporter at WLTX in Columbia, South Carolina. He's now the senior evening anchor at the station, but he remembers when he first saw and heard the name Dale Denwitty 28 years earlier.
2: I remember on the 24th of September, uh, we got a uh, press release from the Columbia Police Department about the, the missing person, Dale Denwitty. Uh, And I remember talking with the proper authorities at the time, trying to gather more information about how long she had been missing their theories on what happened to her. Uh, How could we help get the word out? So basically just getting all that main information uh, just hours after she disappeared in what we call Five Points in downtown Columbia. Five Points is very uh, active, very busy on any night of the week doesn't matter if it's Monday through Friday, especially on weekends, but Monday through Friday, very busy down there. Lots of college kids hanging out in the Five Points area. It's not far from the campus of the University of South Carolina.
0: The night before that press release went out, 23-year-old Dale Denwitty went to a U2 concert with some of her friends. After the concert, they went to a local bar in the Five Points neighborhood, a place called Jungle Gems. One person would later report that they saw her that night around 1.30 in the morning on a nearby street. But that was it. That was the night Dale Dinwiddie vanished.
2: Something happened that night. Uh, we don't know what happened that night. She became separated from her friends. Uh, and when she went to look for her friends, they weren't where she thought they were. She ended up taking a walk after that, leaving around one thirty in the morning. And best I can remember, she was headed north on a street called Harden Street, and no one has seen or heard from her ever since.
0: The next morning, Dale's father was the first to notice something wasn't right. His daughter hadn't come
2: home. Her father told me he woke up at about 6, 6.15 that morning. Uh, he went into her room. It had not been disturbed. She had not been there. He started calling her friends. Dan and Jean Denwood. he started calling the people they knew that, were, that she was hanging out with. Uh, After getting in contact with as many people as they could think to get in contact with, at about 8.30 that morning, they called the local police department. And by that afternoon, the local news media was alerted that we had the missing persons case. Those first few days and weeks
0: went by, but there was no sign of Dale Dinwiddie. No one else came forward with a promising lead or tip. Her family, close friends, they were all interviewed by police as investigators tried to piece together what happened that night. How a young woman out for a night on the town with friends could just vanish.
2: When I talked to the local authorities, when I did some interviews back with the uh, uh, police department when all this happened, they basically came out and said everything was on the table at that point. They did suspect foul play. They suspected that she had been kidnapped, but at that point, they weren't ruling anybody out. So I know that close friends, family members, they all went through the interview process trying to rule them out as suspects in the disappearance of Dale Dinwiddie.
0: And as the holiday season approached, J.R. Barry went to see Dale's parents and talk about the case and their missing daughter.
2: We sat down for about an hour or so. They provided some home videos of Dale. Uh, When I sat down and and spoke with the Dinwiddies, uh, we were about three weeks away from Christmas, and she had been missing about three months at that point. And so they were providing some home video of Dale through the years, particularly at Christmas time, and how happy she was and how bubbly she was. Uh, I know it was a hard time for them that Christmas and every Christmas since then. But Jean and Dan they wanted me to come in. They wanted to chat about Dale. They wanted to talk about her. They wanted uh, more publicity. Put it on. The, put on the case about three months after she had vanished. So I did go to their home. They let me in. Uh, We sat, we talked for about an hour. They were recalling a lot of things about Dale and her childhood and her early teen years and graduating high school and then off to college she goes. She had a particular interest, her mother said, in art. But that night of September 23rd,
0: 1992, didn't make any sense to her family.
2: They did not believe that this is something that she would do voluntarily. In other words, leave without telling anybody. Uh, She was very responsible. Uh, She um, was always in contact with someone, according to the family. She really didn't like being alone in certain situations. Her mother told me that this this was completely out of character. Dale was not the type of person who would simply just run off and not tell anybody. You know, uh, from my recollection, she had some medical issues. I believe she had asthma and some allergies. She needed her medications. And at the time she disappeared, she didn't have her medications. Not only that, but at the time she disappeared, a search of Jungle Gems, the bar where she vanished from, where she was last seen, her purse was inside Jungle Gems. I do remember that part. I thought that was kind of odd that she would leave without her purse. But then later in speaking with her parents to find out that she uh, had severe asthma, that she had allergies, she needed her daily meds, and it was medications that she also didn't have. For
0: J.R. Barry, the meeting with her parents was raw, emotional.
2: Again, just, you know, sitting there in their home, you, you felt their pain, you know, three months after the fact, after their daughter vanished. You really felt for the family at that point. And you're hoping that whatever you put out there on the air that uh, somebody somewhere would see it, and if they were involved or knew who was involved in her disappearance, that perhaps, you know, especially around Christmas time, they might say, you know, I need to tell somebody. But that never happened. Meanwhile, the case was getting
0: tons of attention in South Carolina and beyond. There were search parties, vigils, and press conferences. Reward money was offered. But the holidays came and went that year, and others would follow.
2: And the Denwitties were left with only memories of their daughter. And I know over the years, they have worked hundreds, if perhaps not more than a thousand leads in this case. They were constantly asking the public to give them any kind of information, no matter how small that information was, to their team in hopes that it could lead to them finding Dale Dinwiddie. Uh, I remember over the years, the number of psychics were called. And as a result of those psychics being called, uh, local authorities were sent out into what's called the Lower Richland area. They found a car in that pond out there in the Lower Richland, uh, pulled it out, and she was not in the vehicle. She was not in the pond. Uh, somebody reported that there was a, um, a strange odor of some kind coming out of a house in the Five Points area. So the authorities went there, and they tore the house up, basically. They tore the floor uh, up and, and, and trying to see if that uh, would lead to any answers, and it didn't. They have been led to digs before. People say, well, I found some bones in this area or that area, but all those bones over the years have turned out to be animal bones, not human bones. There was even speculation through the years about a possible link to a known
0: serial killer who might have been in the area when Dale Dinwiddie vanished. His name was
2: Javier Ray Rivera. He actually lived in Columbia at the time she disappeared, and he actually attended the University of South Carolina at some point in 1992, so he was in the area. So here you have a guy uh, who killed four women in Georgia living in the same area at the same time that this young lady vanished. Now, I know the local authorities have gone to the prison time and time again. They have talked to Rivera. They've tried to get some solid evidence, some solid leads. But despite the repeated visits there, they simply have not been able to get anything out of him that would lead them to believe that he had anything to do with this.
0: And no charges were ever filed against him in the Dinwiddie case. And in Columbia, South Carolina, the story of Dale Denwitty gradually faded from the public eye as Leeds led nowhere and her disappearance went unsolved.
2: For, uh, I would say, probably a good 10 to 15 years after her disappearance, you could still go into area stores and see her picture uh, on, the, on the store windows. And an age progression photo later appeared. But as the years have progressed, like anything, uh, this case has not generated a lot of interest. It's been 28 years now. Although the mystery is still there, uh, storefronts down in the Five Points area, Columbia businesses, they stopped posting those pictures uh, a few years back. I know local authorities would probably like for that still to be out there, you know, hoping that uh, somewhere somebody's gonna come forward that necessary information to crack this case. For J.R. Berry,
0: Dale's story has stuck with him even after decades in the news business.
2: I will tell you this, uh, just on a personal note, I was really touched by this story back in 1992, and I believe that uh, the parents could tell I was really trying to get the word out and trying to help. Before I left Jean's house that day, she gave me a glossy 8x10 of her daughter, Dale Dinwiddie. She said, you can use this on TV, you can do what you wish with this photo as long as, you know, we we get some information. That photo is still in my desk in a brown envelope. We used it repeatedly on our broadcast reports, but the case struck a nerve with me as a parent, and I have held onto that uh, photograph now for 28 years. Fourteen years after she
0: disappeared, in 2006, investigators looking at old evidence found a strand of hair on Dinwiddie's brush and used it to get a sample of her DNA. Before, investigators only had DNA from Dinwiddie's parents. This new DNA was logged into a national database and could still be used to identify a body or help if police make an arrest.
2: That solid lead never came in. Uh, And and over the years, the five-year anniversary, the 10-year anniversary, the 20-year anniversary, 25-year anniversary, the story is always revisited with the hopes that somebody... Somewhere will step forward and help crack this case. And so far, as you know, that hasn't happened.
0: But tips do still
2: come in, and police
0: are still investigating the case of Dale Dinwiddie. Anyone with information is asked to call Crime Stoppers at 1 888 Crime SC or email a tip to Crime
3: Stoppers of the Midlands. For the second half of this week's episode, we traveled to Williamson County, Texas, a semi-rural farming community just north of Austin. It's here in Williamson County that advances in digital forensic sketching are helping local investigators identify three of their oldest cold case victims.
1: It's October 3rd of 1988. It's a blustery day. The freshly fallen autumn-hued leaves blow across the semi-paved driveway of a local farm. The farmer steps out of his house and calls out to his dog, who comes running from the direction of the nearest busy road, Interstate 29. As the dog trots up, the farmer notices it has something smooth and white in its mouth. The farmer walks over and crouches down to get a closer look. It's a piece of bone, but it's not the bone of animal roadkill or one of the many different types of herd animals ranched in the area. It's a piece of human skull. The farmer calls Williamson County sheriff deputies, who begin to investigate the area.
4: Williamson County Sheriff's deputies found a man's remains on the side of Highway 29 in a ditch right next to the mobile home park.
1: This is Marie Salazar. She is a multimedia journalist and reporter for KVU in Austin, Texas.
4: So deputies only found skeletal remains, which gives them the idea that this man didn't die in October of 1988, but six months to even a year before his remains were found.
1: With the body out in the elements for so long, there is little left to identify who this person was. The clothing is in tatters, except for a faded red ball cap that has a Confederate flag logo, which leads investigators to give this John Doe the moniker Rebel Ray. Investigators determined that Ray was between 5'2 and 5'5 with a muscular build. He died between the ages of 27 and 38, and he may have been of Hispanic or Native American ancestry. He had also previously broken his nose. Other than that, there's not much else to go on.
4: So that's the really tough part about this case. Deputies will automatically tell you when they're talking about this case, it's not a thick file. And um, they believe that he may have lived at the Riverside Mobile Home Park or worked there as a handyman. And um, that's pretty much all they can tell you right now.
1: After the initial investigation yields very little in the way of evidence, police create a sketch and look to the community for possible answers. But no one seems to recognize him in the sketch. His case goes cold, And Rebel Ray is still not identified over 30 years later. However, in 2018, cold case detectives begin reopening their Jane and John Doe cases in the county with the hope that maybe after all of these years, they can finally identify them. And the main way that Williamson County investigators are attempting this is to turn to two of the latest forensic innovations, genealogical DNA and 3D forensic sketching created by sketch artist Natalie Murray.
4: Natalie Murray got into forensic drawing 20 years ago when she was a police officer in Washington state and has been doing this ever since. She's been doing it from her home in Georgetown, and she recently joined the Woco cold case unit on the unidentified remains that they look into.
1: Now, everyone has seen wanted posters and forensic art before. It's been a key component over the last hundred years in identifying both unknown victims as well as the perpetrators of crimes. But a lot has changed. The advent of digital modeling and 3D drawing has helped to bring more accuracy to forensic art, which increases the chances of someone actually recognizing the person in it. Natalie's office is a mix of the latest digital drawing tablets and computers, as well as a seemingly macabre mix of skulls and other anatomy that gives her artistic inspiration. Sometimes people don't even know what it is that they recognize about someone. It knows it is something that's really difficult to figure out because a lot of it is cartilage and soft tissue, and that's kind of difficult to, to work out. So I looked at the first sketch, but there have been some changes since that time. There've been some studies on how to make a nose projection a little more accurate since that time. The first sketch was done in 1990. Once I get the proportions of those features right, chance of somebody recognizing that guy have gone up astronomically. Now, you may be thinking, what are the chances that a new sketch actually works? Well, not only do these updated sketches work, Natalie's sketches have led to two recent success stories with other cold case victims in Williamson County.
4: So she's not only sketched Rebel Ray, but she also sketched Orange Socks and Corona Girl, who actually their families were found just a little bit after she created those sketches.
1: Orange Socks was the nickname given to a young woman who was found on the side of the road 40 years ago. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and dumped over the guardrail of Interstate 35. She was found wearing only orange socks. Natalie Murray updated her original sketch in 2019, and in August of that year, orange socks was identified as 22-year-old Deborah Jackson. Now, the uh, Williamson County Sheriff's Office uh, says Jackson's sister was watching the news when she saw the sketch that was released about a month ago. It reminded her of her sister, which is why she reached out to investigators. That's when the DNA Doe Project used uh, an over the counter DNA test kit to match the sister's DNA with the DNA from Orange Sox. Now that they have a name, the Sheriff's Office is looking for help from other departments in North Texas to get more information on this murder. As for what's next, they're hoping hoping someone around here knows more. Another young woman whose remains were found decades ago was recently identified as well.
4: And Corona Girl was another victim that was a more than 30-year cold case that was recently identified. She was only known as Corona Girl because she was wearing a Corona beer t-shirt when she was found, and she was identified as Sue Ann Husky. Her
3: name is Sue Ann Husky. Tonight, her mother, Sue Bryant, confirmed that to me over the phone and that a detective told one of Bryant's daughters of a DNA match in the case.
1: The fact that two other local, decades-old, unidentified victims have recently been identified gives a lot of hope to investigators that this new sketch of Rebel Ray may shine a light on his identity as well.
4: So in the new Rebel Ray sketch, Rebel Ray has long dark hair, tan skin, and some stubble. The first drawing was made in pencil, so it's not very 3D. If you look at his face, their noses are very different. The proportion of Rebel Ray's face is as accurate as it can be right now. And Murray says that that's the most important thing when it comes to recognition.
1: Williamson County Police have also partnered with the DNA Doe Project, which uses the latest forensic breakthrough in genealogic DNA matching.
4: So the DNA Doe Project has been a huge part of the Williamson County Sheriff's Office's cold case unit for the past two years. So they look into thousands of cases waiting to be solved with DNA. And so far, they've made more than two dozen identifications of Jane Doe's and John Doe's across the country. They put these sketches on their website so that people can go onto the website and look through the people to see if they recognize anyone. So the DNA Doe Project depends on things like GEDmatch um, for people uploading DNA results from websites like ancestry.com and 23andMe. And without this, they say that a lot of the cold cases will stay cold. Um, And there's a lot of work that goes into what they do. When the DNA testing is done, they'll make a file, upload it to the genealogy databases, and get a list back of potential DNA matches. And when we're talking about the DNA matches, it, it's more talking about second cousins, third cousins, fourth cousins, and great-great-grandparents. So they they say that they need people to be uploading their DNA to these websites because that's how they start matching the DNA with the unidentified people. The investigation work kind of kicks in after all of this potential DNA matches comes back to the DNA Doe Project, they start searching social media, public databases, and anything that gives them a lead until they find that person.
1: The updated old school, the process of forensic sketching, paired with the latest DNA analysis makes for a powerful combination for identifying unknown remains. For Marie, she thinks this combo might be the key in opening up the secret of who Rebel Ray was
4: if you look at Corona Girls case or Orange Sox's case, they're decades they were they died decades ago. And they were just identified last year. And they died in the seventies and the eighties. And it's just there there's hope for these people. I feel like they have missing loved ones out there and just have no idea where they are. He could have been from anywhere and they're hoping that this this helps them.
3: Reed Redmond here, joined as always by Will Johnson and Spencer Brittig. And we had a couple different stories this week. I wanted to start off talking a little bit more about the Dale Dinwiddie case. If there's one thing we've learned from covering cold cases like this, it's that you never know when evidence is going to show up and relight a fire under an investigation. Um, and however many years later, this started in 1992, however many years later, they're still looking at it, right?
1: Yeah, I know that in uh, multiple interviews with reporters over the years, Leon Lott, who is the sheriff of Richland County, he says that he's still absolutely actively investigating this case. And he actually made a promise uh, to her family that he would never stop looking as long as he is in office. And he's been going since 1996. And I do know that there is still reward money on the books. I believe it's $20,000. Um, and, you know, he's just someone that has been a huge advocate in gaining some justice and finally figuring out, you know, what happened to Dale Dinwiddie.
0: And, you know, this is just one of those cases where once again, it happened, I think similar to a case we just, we just did recently, Spencer, where, you know, it, it was long enough a ago that there weren't cameras on every street corner. There weren't cell phones. Obviously, it's the kind of crime that today y- y- we probably would have something
3: to go on. Yeah. And uh, speaking of you know new ways that, that people are investigating crimes like this, um, Spencer, let's talk about the second half of this episode. I am just fascinated by Natalie Murray's job, this digital forensic artist that you spoke to. And this is probably a huge oversimplification, but essentially... She's able to turn those kind of old school two dimensional police sketches into really realistic three D images of a victim or suspect, right?
1: Yeah, it's really pretty cool to see. I mean, um, in in seeing video of her office and, and talking with uh, Marie Salazar, she said that um, you know she has these uh, physical models of of like human anatomy. There's skulls, and then she's able to kind of um, she talks a lot about taking the. Uh, physical deformations of a skull, and and feeling, um, you know, these models of skulls, and and applying that to her art to make it more realistic. And the objective is, the more realistic it is, the higher the chance that someone will actually recognize it. Because even though uh, forensic sketching has been around for a hundred plus years, and it's been a big part of the American justice system since the early twentieth century, um, this new technology has totally changed the way that these artists are actually a creating the art. They're no longer pencil sketching, uh, 2d. They are, you know, using tablets and, and modern, um, computer applications to render out these really high resolution, uh, beautiful images that, um, people are a lot more likely to actually look at that and say, Hey, I remember that person. And, uh, if it can jog someone's memory, it can, uh, actually identify the person. And and we know that her art itself has caused people to recognize family members and loved ones.
0: Yeah, it it actually really really is interesting. And it's like one of those areas of investigation where, like interrogations, we've all seen it on TV. We've seen it in the movies. You see like the police sketch artist. And I have to say, I'm always a little suspicious of how well those drawings are going to work when they get them out there to the public. And a lot of times you see a drawing and it's like, well, that could be anybody. But they do work. I mean, People get picked up because of drawings, right?
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing too is there's uh, it's a little bit different when when someone is drawing a forensic sketch of of a a perpetrator from someone's memory. You know, I I would wonder the accuracy because it's someone that has gone through some sort of traumatic event trying to recall what that person that may have you know attacked them or someone in that they saw being attacked. It, It probably is less accurate than actually having physical remains and being able to look at that and say, uh, I, I think I can actually recreate what this person would have looked like um, when they were alive and healthy and walking around. Yeah, but on the same hand, it, those drawings,
0: oftentimes, you, I feel like you, you see an, in an investigation, that's like the first thing they do, right? Because it's probably fresh in someone's mind. And to be able to get those general characteristics down on paper, you know, mustache, beard, all those things that kind of are, may seem kind of basic— Pretty important uh, as they start to look for a suspect in any given case,
1: you know, and this this does remind me of of a case that we covered a couple of weeks ago, the Seabrook case in which there was forensic sketch art of someone that was described to be a cowboy. And then when that case uh, came to a close, it it turned out that it was a relatively accurate uh, description and and an accurate piece of art.
3: So Spencer, the other thing that you talked about is this organization called the DNA Doe Project. Um, I would guess a lot of our listeners have heard of the FBI DNA database, which is known as CODIS, but this is different from that, right?
1: Yeah, Reid. I mean, it's different because it is a a nonprofit that is a collection of volunteers, and CODIS is a you know federally funded uh, large federal organization. But I think it's just no matter what, it's it's a good thing because these people have decided to come together and uh, put their put their heads together in order to figure out. Um, you know who some of these unidentified people are around the country and to try and gain some sort of justice for their families.
3: Well, as uh, our regular listeners know, we do have a new episode out every single Monday. And Will, you have something uh, in the works for us next week? Yep. A story from Ohio, how a day at the park for a mother of four, a wife
0: uh, turned into tragedy. We'll tell you about that next week. And Spencer, where can people go to learn more about True Crime Chronicles and about Vault Studios.
1: Yeah, we have a uh, Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault. It's got 5,000 members. It's a great spot to uh, talk with other like-minded true crime fans about this case and other cases just like it.
0: All right, we'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.